0: Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 185. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at vjourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy at networknerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing great. We are pre-sales
1: technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor-neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at NerdJourney. DM's wide open. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey.
0: A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Today is the first part of a conversation... That we had with a new interviewee, and believe it or not, it is, I believe, a two-parter.
1: I was shocked to find that it was two parts. Yes. I mean.
0: Hardly ever will we go over one episode with one person, um, but Phil Monk was a uh, special that way, and it led to a two-parter, unlike every single other interview that we've done. Well, okay, that's not true at all, but more to the point. You know, on Phil, you know, really cool conversation. The things that stuck out for me that, you know, I hope that people listen out for were kind of that early on, like, how does this work? Curiosity and uh, kind of the fearlessness about breaking things (laughs) as part of taking them apart to learn how they do work. And uh, maybe some like early exposure to that from like trades that uh, the family was in. I thought that it was interesting. It, was, it made me wonder if that's a learned behavior rather than, than an innate ability or innate behavior. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I definitely do. And now that you mention it, I do not know the answer. I think listeners should pay special attention to the scenario where Phil manages to get into an advanced IT course in college because of the fact that he got to use a different medium for the test. Yeah, it's foreshadowing for something that will come up later in the episode.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating how um, to learn a little bit more about how uh, Phil's brain works. I also thought that you know we got into it a little bit with like differences between the United States and the UK. You know, educational systems dipped our toes a little bit into you know class differences and how they're recognized in the UK versus the US. I think mostly that was me mouthing off, but um. I still think it was interesting.
1: It wasn't too ranty, and John wasn't on the soapbox for too long. That makes everybody feel better.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Anything else to signpost before we get into the episode?
1: Last thing I'll say is remember that while some people could think of a certain quality or situation as a weakness, others could look at it as a strength. Think about that as you listen to this episode.
0: So let's get into episode... 185 part one with Phil Mung. Phil Mung, welcome to the Mirror Journey Podcast.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here.
0: Awesome. Hey, can you tell us what it is that you do today?
2: Yeah, sure, no worries. So I am. Um, I currently work in VMware um, in the UK, well in EMEA, um, and I'm based in for a team called Critical Accounts, which is the highest form of escalation in VMware. When you have a challenge or a problem that either your account team or GSS log, and you go through a number of normal processes. If that fo- all fails, then um, you inevitably come to us. But we don't fix the problem in a break fix way like GS do. We tend to stabilize and then look at the customer's sort of wider architecture the operational challenges, try and understand why their issues were caused, where they came from, what the background is, and then also, you know, work on the impact to the business and try and sort of resolve those issues and move the customer along. We tend to engage for a bit longer as well. So we are engaged for sort of normally about 90 days, three months with the customer to to stabilize them and do that sort of architectural operational piece. Um, It's very different, but I really enjoy doing it. Something I've I've done for a while now.
0: Oh, that's really cool. You said it's a fairly new team at VMware?
2: Yeah, I mean, they've had escalation teams for, for a while, but normally, they, like I said, they go in, do break, fix, and then they sort of leave. But um, with the complexity of some of the solutions that come out of VMware at the moment, we don't help ourselves in many ways. So there's teams like myself that, that go in and do sort of the wider engagement to enable customers to consume in a, in a much better way. We've been around sort of like um, 2021 was when we started. Yeah, we divided from the customer success team. Got it. Got it.
0: So I'm guessing that it has to do with kind of complex customer architectures and trying to figure out maybe architecturally patterns that could be
2: done better. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, that's that's one of the challenges. The other is that we see a lot of the time is operational. So, you know, we do a very bad job at VMware of of enabling customers to consume our um, solutions and software in an easy way. So a lot of the work that we're starting to do now and drive towards um, with other teams as well, like PSO and the TAM community, is try and drive some more of that operational awareness. And you'll hopefully see soon some productized offerings that are going to come out of VMware around that as well, which have been driven by myself and some of the other other people in my team as well and some of the principal community as well that's putting those together.
1: Nice. Yeah, hopefully.
0: <laughs> I'm just trying to to... Remember my uh, my VMware lingo. The PSO is Professional Services Organization. Yeah, that's the, correct. Yeah, yeah. And the TAMS are the Technical Account Managers.
2: That's correct. Yeah. Sorry, okay. we're, we're we're a company of acronyms, so I sometimes forget that other people don't don't always know what they are. Every company is a company of acronyms.
0: <laughs> and GSS is Global Support Services for reference too. Ah, that's yeah. So that's the one I didn't remember. Yeah. it's been almost three years since I left VMware and. I've lost my my card, my uh, my decoder card. So, uh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Could we uh, maybe back up, Phil, and and talk a little bit about how you got into the tech industry? Like, how far back does that go?
2: Yeah, I mean, I started in the IT industry when I was um, seventeen in two thousand and four. Uh, that might give you an inkling to my age. Anyone that can do some quick maths and understand that, but um, it was largely down to my dad. Um, my dad's when I was. 12, 11, brought us a, a computer it, it, and put it in our living room. And back then, you know, in, in the 90s, a computer was a you know, very expensive thing to buy. And we weren't a very well-off family. So my dad, you know, went, went out of his way to try and buy us and enable us to, to, to be able to, to experience that. It took me a week to put it apart and have it across the living room, and then uh, which he wasn't very happy about. But was was OK when I sort of could put it back together did take me a few weeks to put it back together but that was my sort of first exposure into knowing that I wanted to do technology I was fascinated by how everything worked and and then I started doing coding on it Um, it was a Windows 95 machine I think it was so I was doing DOS and all things like that and then he bought me a Commodore 64 because you could do easier programming on that recorded tapes and started trying to build games and things on that which was really interesting and then I sort of just had a just had a passion and an interest for trying to learn new things around it. So when I went into school uh, in the UK, we do GCSEs, which I think are I think they're equivalent to tests you guys do in high school in the states. We have a you can choose basically what subject you want to do. So I chose IT, and they point blankly refused because I'd been a menace to them during the years that I was there, and not not specialising that subject, changing the backgrounds on computers, and turning the login screens upside down, and you know just doing mischievous things that teenagers do. But outside of that, I then, you know, went to college and um, you have to do a, in the UK when you choose to do a, a college course, they tend to do an aptitude test. So they make you sit down and do like a 20 minute test that you're supposed to learn if you're right for the courses or not. So I did one for sort of the bottom grade of, of um, the IT courses that they were offering. And largely that was because I didn't get very good results in my tests because um, I was uh, diagnosed as dyslexic quite late on, but I didn't get a lot of help. So uh, the tests were difficult for me to do. And then uh, but I did the test on the computer for the college course and I sort of aced the first one. They gave me the second one, aced that. Then they gave me the third one and I did okay on that. So they put me in the higher course, which was unusual for sort of uh, someone my age. And then, yeah, sort of went from there. I really uh, really enjoyed my time at college, learnt a lot and was um, picked up by uh, a company called T-Systems who was based in UK. I mean, I'm sure loads of people know them. They're a global SI. But they used to go around the colleges in Milton Keynes and pull out people that were okay and then stick them in front of monitoring desks so that's how I started my career (laughs) that's
0: awesome I I wanted to ask about that instinct to take apart the computer um, (laughs) yeah to, to back up there is that the I'm guessing it's not the first time that you were tinkering and experimenting and breaking things am I right about that
2: yeah, I've always had an interest in in how things work. I mean, my dad was um, was a mechanic or worked in the motor industry most of his life. So pulling engines apart and gearboxes apart and building go-karts was something that I, I used to do with him and my granddad. So I yeah, always had this instinct if I wasn't sure how something works, I was going to figure it out. So putting it apart was, was natural. when you learned, When you did that with a computer, there's no moving bits in it. So it was trying to understand okay there's no moving bits in this how does that bit over there talk to that bit and what does it do when you tell it to do this so yeah that that sort of made me very more inquisitive in in trying to learn more about that
1: and you can't figure out how something works until you've successfully taken it apart and put it back together right
2: yeah completely as long as when you put it back together it works
1: well exactly (laughs) exactly no no guarantee that, that that will happen but yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. part of the tinkering and learning process. You have to, you have to mess it up a couple of times. I will say when it comes to electronics, you got to be careful when you turn the power on, especially if you have it wired wrong. Yeah, completely. I mean, I,
2: um, I, I started building computers not long after, um, you know, I pulled the, the family one apart. My dad used to take me to computer fairs and we used to buy bits and build new gaming computers for myself at the time. I used to play Carmageddon quite a lot, um roller coaster tycoon unreal tournament those sort of games so building pcs to, to make them and then i uh at college started to build them and was found that i was quite good at building them in unusual things so we built them in fridges and overclocked them and you know, things like that and we built them in alloy wheels because obviously my dad's been in the motor industry i had loads of them lying around and yes yeah, so we started building them i had some in some magazines actually custom pc magazine in the uk if, in the uh the early 2000s If anyone remembers that oh that's so cool
1: and what did you do when T systems picked you up, Phil? What was the line of work there?
2: So I was I was one of the ones that they picked up and stuck in front of a monitoring desk, like I mentioned. Um but it was a great sort of foothold into the industry. At the time in Milton Keynes where I lived, there were so many SIs that were, you know, running service desks and monitoring desks. There was detronics, there was Pink Boucade, there was Computer Centre. Uh, T systems as well, and um, a company called Gidas, which was a smaller one. But yeah, I, I, I learned a lot there, and um, eventually, you know, progressed into the into support while I was there because I got again that that itch for trying to understand how things happened. I could see them flashing on the screen and wanting to understand what was broken and how to fix it. I you know started pestering the people I was calling up, and then when they realised that actually I could fix the problem, they wouldn't have to get out of bed, but they could still be paid for getting out of bed. Then they decided that they were going to enable me to fix them, which is which was quite interesting.
0: Oh, that's fascinating! So the monitoring desk is kind of like uh like in a network operations center, or like some kind of operation center.
2: Yeah, basically. Yeah, we were we were in the basement, like most people's experiences of knocks and uh, sort of operation centers. And then yeah, with screens everywhere. As soon as something went red and made a noise, you had to look at it.
0: It's a interesting entry point because you kind of see things from a very, very high level and not like a low level. Like you don't have, like if you start in support, then people are calling you up to say, hey, this stopped working and I need you to fix it. And if you start in monitoring, then you see an alert that says, oh, this thing isn't working and you need to call somebody else.
2: Yeah. You see the symptom rather than the, um, you know, the result, which is one of the things that was quite interesting because you could see, for example, like one of the one of the customers for, for T-System at the time was Daimler Chrysler and he used to do parts orders for a mainframe. So you could see the mainframe, you know, maybe slowing down and not processing their orders. And then the following day you'd have the, some of the Daimler sort of help desk phoning up saying dealers haven't got parts and stuff like that. So you could see the relation between a problem starting and what the impact of it was, sort of in the wider community, which not everyone appreciated, but I did. I, I understood it, and you know, thought it was quite important to understand.
0: Sorry, I was, uh, I was laughing off mic. But, yeah, <laughs> That's right. I could certainly understand. You know, somebody higher up not appreciating that uh, somebody saw it ahead of time and then wasn't empowered to actually fix it, and yeah. Uh, that can that can leave to lead to some action. Hopefully it can. Even if it's informal. It sounded like it was a little bit more like informal enablement to like allow you to uh to actually fix things. Is is that right?
2: Yeah, it was. So I, again I was I was really lucky with um the manager I had in the monitoring desk and the, the manager of the team that I primarily was interested in the issues were, which was a Wintel and VMware team. They I think they, they sort of realised that I was you know, generally interested by, this, by some of this stuff. I mean, a lot of the guys on the monitoring desk, the young guys would come in, they maybe would do it for six months and didn't like the shift pattern and leave. But I was there for, for 18 months, um, You know, and a lot of the other guys had been there, I'd hate to say lifers, but they were, you know, long time been there, not interested in progressing their career, liked the salary, liked the, the shift pattern. So it was sort of something that was just comfortable for them, but I was interested in it. So the, the you know, the Wintel manager, Intel VMware manager gave me access to stuff, gave me some informal training. And then I eventually started um, going in my four, in my shift pattern, my four days off and four days on in the time between, actually going up to Braunwood Wood where they were based um, and working with them to understand all in my own time. Um, you know, that was the, the drive that I had to try and learn more and want to progress my career with them. And then eventually they, they offered me a job, which was in support doing second line at the time and was double the salary I was earning in the monitoring desk and I saw it as a you know a good a good way into something different so I took it
1: and not everybody wants that level of learning to really understand deeply how something works they just want to fix the problem as soon as possible and sometimes that results in a continual placing of the band-aid on the problem that's Mm. my observation
2: Yeah definitely I'd I'd agree with that based on you know a number of things that I saw as well Um, especially again even moving into the support team there there was it was divided into two the Wintel team you had like a, a project team that did everything that was new and exciting which intrigued me but wasn't something that I wanted to straight away aggressively try and get into so I you know sort of honed my skills and learnt a lot more doing the support side of stuff and yeah there were there were four of us when I started and um when I when I left that team, eventually after you know after some time, there were two of us, me and one other guy, because we were both really interested in what was going on, and we were doing nearly all the calls. So they moved the other other staff to other places. But yeah, it was it was interesting. I learnt so much there, and I was so grateful for both the managers in the monitoring, monitoring side and in the support side for you know giving me that opportunity because I didn't have any university degree or anything like that. I just had my my college um, higher national diploma it was called um, that I came out of with. Can
0: I ask a little bit about that? In the UK, is there the ability to get a like a college diploma in something like IT?
2: Yeah, there is. It's um so we have we, we have um what we call GCSEs, which are what you would leave um what we call secondary school they're sort of, are they starting to call it high school here. They're inheriting a lot of the American naming, but and then you would do something called A levels, which is sort of like your your next step to get into university but then if you didn't get good a levels you would normally convert them to either a diploma or, or something like that to, in a specific area but diplomas and nvqs i think you know they're not really well fought after education levels you know they're, they're sort of the, the level that you get if you're okay not if you're exceptional but um you know it was what i got because of, of some other challenges with around my, my dyslexia and that not being identified quite late and um as well and not really wanting to go to university there was nothing that, that I, I've never really felt a need to go to go there to want to do it all of my learning I preferred to do hands-on and experience and stuff like that so that was why I took that different path
0: is there a class signifier in going to university you know that's one of those things that is different from the US and the UK in the UK there's kind of this like very clear understanding of like class boundaries and in the us we really work very hard to pretend that they don't exist
2: yeah that, that's that's a great question actually because without getting too political because things at the moment in the uk with politics are scary to say the least yeah there is um you know differentiation there we we had the, the political party that was in when i was in school um Made it so that it was free to go to university for certain class for certain level of earners and based on how much your parent earned. But largely, everyone would go for free. Now, the the current government they changed it in. Oh, I can't remember. It's probably six seven years ago. You have to pay fees, and it's around about ten thousand twelve thousand pounds a year to be able to go to university, and parents have to pay that. So you only go if you're rich. But previously, you would only go. You could go even if you weren't. But yeah, it, it, is, it is, can be a class sort of defining level of education, I think, in the UK still.
0: You know, I've read and heard that it's very true in the US as well. I mean, there's interviews to see if you're a good fit. And, yeah. you know, for sometimes times, it, like, really what that means is like, you know, is this like person class appropriate, you know, and, and that's a very, like, nebulously uh, defined thing in the States, but... It's like kind of the, I knew it when I see it. And because it's so unacknowledged, you know, it's a very insidious, uh, little filter, but
2: yeah, no, I understand. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, it's just, a uh, something that I'm striving to understand. So anytime there's a hint of it, I, I always like to ask, I don't know, because in the U S we can say like working class, although we tend to say like blue collar, uh, versus white collar jobs, but we also like to pretend that there's a lot of mobility and a desire for mobility from like working class to like a more of like a white collar background. And Mm. I, I don't think that there necessarily is like sometimes it's very uncomfortable to take that like step across a hard class boundary to say, you know, Oh, you know, I'm leaving everything that I know and all the people that I know and the and going someplace where I don't have any support network.
2: My wife went to university too because she wanted to be a teacher. So, she, so one of the, that's a job where you have to go to university. So, you know, and she's from the same background as me, same attitudes and and everything. So, yeah, she went because she she had to. She if if she's probably going to listen to this because we listen to podcasts and we go to sleep. So she's definitely going to listen to this. She hated to a second and third year of university. So yeah, it was something she had to do, but not necessarily, you know, really enjoyed.
0: Okay, sorry. Didn't want, I hope that wasn't like, you know, super sensitive. Like no, no, I said, it's in the US, it's like, you know, class is this like really unacknowledged thing that I'm pretty curious about. I have
1: a comment on top of that. Speaking of acknowledgement, sometimes when people call support, all they want is Acknowledgement that someone hears them, understands the problem and is trying to fix it, not necessarily an immediate solution. You mentioned, Phil, that it came easy for you figuring out how to deconstruct and reconstruct things. What's your take on how well you adjusted to the communication side and talking with people who might be a little upset? Yeah, I mean, because if you've been in support, then you know that you're going to get some upset people it's just a natural part of the game
2: i mean as a as a 19 20 year old it, it was a bit of a shock to the system when you got uh you know when i start when i progressed up to third line support inside that team and and you know essentially had people phoning me shouting at me when stuff wasn't working and i was a bit like initially just a you know a bit taken back by it and like whoa you know i'm just i'm here to help you just you know calm down and and we can move things forward but um you learn those those skills very very quickly I think well I did anyway i i mean i'm pretty I'm pretty outgoing if if, a, if there's a group of people standing there and no one's talking I'll start talking to people try and find something in common and you know and generally I think have quite a good um, level of communication and demeanor and and so I've been told anyway by people that, that I've worked with so i I adapted to it relatively quickly um I'm not going to say I was perfect I made mistakes said things to people I shouldn't have done. You know, even at times, got upset at people shouting at me. Um, you know, I've, I've can recall one thing actually when I was um, actually not not in the T Systems role, but in uh, one of my next roles in in consulting, where um, I, I made a mistake where when I was implementing something for a, for a council in Milton Keynes and at Milton Keynes, so in the UK, and took down some of their production infrastructure, and three or four people shouting at me, and I just broke down crying because I didn't know how to deal with with it in that type of situation. So there's no harming that isn't there you know there's no I don't think um shame in admitting that but it's it's something that you do to learn so it took me a while to learn how to to overcome certain situations but I found it a natural progression a natural way to learn how to deal with people like that
1: you mentioned the move to consulting that's a little bit different than support can you shed light on what made you want to jump into that
2: yeah sure so I um so, so I mentioned that in the T Systems team, they had a you know a, pro- a project side of stuff, um, and then they had the support side of stuff as well. So I um I learned loads in support, um, you know how people consume stuff, how they uh, how consume software, how they their expectations on their consumption and, and their experience, and also you know I learned the importance of, of things like availability and performance of applications and. Um, infrastructure and networking. I I just learned. I learned so much. Absorbed it all over two years of doing that role, and then um, started working with a gentleman uh, inside uh, the project team, a guy called uh, Tony Butler, who um, was probably didn't realise it, but was actually a mentor of mine at that sort of age. Telling, you know, helping me understand where to go, and helping me understand what how to design stuff and what the importance was of not just going oh you click here 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 and then and there you go bang there's your software. Actually understanding actually you know, what the how to shape it to what a business wants, um, and he was mainly Citrix focused. So that was even before you know I got into Microsoft and and VMware side of technology for designing, etc. So he, I learned a lot from from Tony at that stage. And uh, there came apart when T Systems decided they were going to outsource support. And so I was looking, being young, not really knowing what that meant. I straight away just went to find a new job and found a role in a little consultancy company called Qdos, who actually now have of transition to a, a, another company but um yeah I learned a lot there I worked there for 6 months um as on a short term contract and just learned so much around consultancy with you know going to customers asking them questions actually writing stuff down and not just going hands on straight away and installing software and building stuff but you know actually that side of stuff so it was a natural progression that was kicked by my role not being in support anymore um, and me looking for something new to do
1: I feel like there's this consulting approach that really good support engineers take when they're trying to fix a problem. I mean, did you learn some of the consulting recommendations from the time in support, other than shadowing Tony?
2: Yeah, that's that. Again, okay, that's a good question. Um, I've not really thought about that, but you know, thinking about some of the some of the processes that I sort of followed there, yeah, they would have been focused on things that I had learned in the support process. So like failures and, um, you know, in the way that um, certain areas of, Microsoft was what I was sort of going into when I was in the consulting space, as well as the VMware piece. So, So learning how things there failed did impact, you know, the decision paths that I was taking around how to make decisions on architecture and design. And I think that was a great, skill to have and a great piece of experience to have because you you firsthand you know understand how people try to operate and use something so you understand maybe some of the decisions that you're going to take during the design implementation as to what what the impact of those is and you know it does help you make the right decisions not necessarily always the right decisions but it does help you consider a lot of areas definitely
0: yeah that's fascinating the that feedback especially as you go through something you're going to stay with it a little bit more you start to understand a little bit why there are like architecture design philosophies mm-hmm. and like processes that that people work through and and why that has become a thing not you know that any specific process you know is important as long as you have a process that encompasses a lot of you know discussions with the customers and figuring out exactly what it is that they need and and the things that they can and can't do and what they can and can't spend and and things like that. Yeah, most
2: definitely. So
0: that move from support to consulting, you've now gotten like three different views of the same industry, right? The kind of monitoring role, um, you know, that high level, hey, I see things going wrong, and maybe I should call somebody to tell them. And then the I don't want to simplify it as break fix but the you know I'll say support role where you're actually like you know actively taking part in fixing you know something and then now the project side where you're actually building the the architecture that is going to cause the failure I, I
2: that's that was a joke there
0: it, the architecture in which failures can occur
2: yeah, and for me, it was a all of that was within five years of starting my IT career. So from seventeen to you know my early twenties, it was that was where I sort of found myself. At that point, I, I continued in consulting for you know a number of years, working for a number of partners from um, VMware and Microsoft, and moved around one or two other companies, um, and and found myself in a in a role where I was doing a managed services type consultancy role, um, as well as some professional services type role. And that was in a company called Virtualize IT that um, was eventually acquired by Virtustream. For those that don't know, Virtustream was formed by about 11 companies that were all brought by um, an investment organisation and sort of piled together. But Virtualize IT was the largest one at the time um, that they acquired. So so yeah, that's where I found myself then.
1: Doing professional services work, that's the implementation side of the consulting gig. And I, I guess when I hear about the term consultant, I often think of both implementation and the planning and architecture and design of the solution. I guess maybe that's not always the case.
2: Yeah, I suppose in the I suppose in the smaller organizations that I worked for, you know, after Leavency systems, the QDOS, the, the virtualize IT, um, and eventually Virtustream when they were, you know, first formed it was a very different sort of consultancy practice than what i did um, when i when i joined vmware and uh, well even actually before i joined the the company before i joined vmware which was a company called exor which were channel services based but yeah you would find that you would tend to to be the the, the designer the implementer the short term support and the short term sort of operational handover and then maybe even some in um, some cases in those small companies the project manager which was skill that um, I, I learned and was, um, you know, okay at, but was not something that I was ever enthralled with having to do. a you know, project management pieces, trying to understand when I was going to be able to implement something and I was myself responsible for being able to meet a deadline. But um, it, it was a good skill to learn for planning and time estimates that, you know, ultimately helped when I did move to XOR and VMware for being able to give estimates for time and, you know, costing and stuff like that as well.
1: Oh, time estimates. Yeah, my wife will tell you I am horrible at it. <laughs> He'd yeah. say hey, I'll be home in thirty minutes, and hour and a half later.
2: Yeah, well, that's the Microsoft time, isn't it? When you are uh, when you are restarting your computer and it says, "Oh, your updates will be done in thirty minutes," and you are still sat there two hours later. Yeah,
1: I guess I, w- I had a bad habit of just starting something
0: that had the potential to take longer than I thought. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I guess I never thought about it, but of course, it makes sense that time estimates for work is a skill that you start out at and you only nebulously have ideas about, if you're running statistical analysis, like your error bars would be pretty wide when you like pretty early on when you're doing those estimates. And then later on, like you start to be a little bit more sensitive to the various inputs that could cause like wide variation. And so you're asking yeah. more questions. It, am I on the right track there?
2: Yeah, definitely. And and I had I had a challenge where um, I think I've, I've probably mentioned a few times. Right? I'm, I'm dyslexic, so for me, my dyslexia affects my ability to be able to read quickly. So I I don't read fast at all, and that's quite common for people that suffer from dyslexic. But they dyslexia, but they read slowly, and they also have to sometimes repeat um, subjects and material several times to be able to understand. And process it properly so that's um that's something that I had to then start to build into estimates that I was giving people of time for work that I was going to do and I also had to um you know doing documentation was also a challenge because I would write things down a lot slower and it would take me longer to do design documentation because it would, you know I would produce a design I would read it back after I produced it and but I would always read it how I expected it to be so being able to have a design to a level that I could give to a customer, I'd have to put that design to decide for maybe three or four days, come back to it and read it afresh and uh, to then actually read it how it's written down and not how I expect it to be. So those sort of challenges I had to try and build into time estimates. And I didn't realize I had to build that into time estimates maybe until two or three years into my career.
0: That That's fascinating. I I think that it matches an experience that I've had, which was getting diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, like as an adult, mm. you know, not even in high school and um, realizing like I have all these different coping skills that aren't necessarily healthy that I've had to work on, you know, over the course of a you know, couple decades to kind of undo. Yeah, that of course, like now that you say it out loud, it makes absolute sense that you're going to have those impacts and it takes maybe kind of a slightly progressive organization to understand that and make accommodation for, for everything, all the implications there. Right. Cause like, I don't know, like I've worked at, you know, VMware in the past and they are just like, Hey, please get this training done by this time or, you know, and, and that's like the non customer facing, type of stuff when it comes to customer facing type of stuff it's like oh you know the natural instinct would be like oh like phil's just going to be slow at that so we're not going to have him do that but that really does not make any sense like you have to do yeah. all parts of things or else the muscles atrophy
2: right yeah and i mentioned um you know some of the the companies that i worked for outside of t-systems so i didn't realize that while I was at T-Systems doing support and monitoring, you know, that it was affecting me that way. But some of the smaller con- uh, companies that I went to afterwards, they were, you know, really, obviously, they, they need to earn money. So time is money to them. And me saying it's going to take me, you know, another four days to do a design because I need to leave two days to be able to read it as it's written was not always something that necessarily went down very well. Um, and I actually left one one company, I'm not going to name them, but, but one company between that time where... Um, you know, the the female director that, um, that was responsible for the consultants basically turned around to me and said, well, if you can't do it in this time, then you may as well leave. So I resigned before I was sacked, basically, because... They couldn't appreciate what I was explaining to them, you know, around my dyslexia and around the challenges I had. But at the same time, they had customers banging on their door asking for me. So I think she was conflicted on which side to take. And unfortunately, I mean, you mentioned class earlier and, and she was definitely a few classes above me, um, you know, took the, the view of that. So I left that company for the pure reason that I felt like I couldn't work there because they didn't understand the, the challenges that I, I had in the way that I worked.
1: Yeah, that's an important one for management to understand the full human and get to know who they are as a person, the needs, you know, but John, this reminds me of Bill Kendall and knowing the things that he needed out of a work environment that, that rings so many bells.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, we always have these experiences, you know, some of them quite negative, like the one that you're describing it sounds like you know a combination of not understanding what we weirdly call disability, maybe different abilities. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just so strange that how we progress and like how those like negative things that impact us can, in the end, help shape you know what it is that we are go looking for when we're looking for that next job. When we have the luxury of saying, "Here is my ideal work environment you know mm. the things that that i need my employer to appreciate about me are and then you know you start to solidify that list i i, I don't know did that ever uh, happen to you did you like kind of more consciously realize oh this is something that i need my employer to understand and appreciate about me.
2: i think that that really sort of happened when i um when i moved to um Exor, which was the company that i was at before i came to vmware so we were delivering professional services consultancy to the channel. And as, actually, there's a story how I got into VMware, which, which comes from that, which is quite interesting. I'll cover that maybe in a in a, a little bit later. But it was when I got to that company that I realised, um, I mean, they hired me because I'd come recommended from some of their their the customers, the, the channel customers who had used me previously. Um, and I was looking for a, a new position. And yeah, and, and they, they reached out to me and offered me a position. I and mean, I went in and interviewed. And I was very transparent with them at that point I'd learned that I needed time and you know and I certain things that I also you know coping mechanisms that I had is um, I used to record a lot of, of stuff on voice um, because uh, most uh, some dyslexic people myself included short-term memory is something that, that affected so at that point for me trying to cope with that sort of short-term memory issue when I was talking to customers I used to record stuff on my phone um, I've got a different mechanism now for dealing with it but, but that's what I used to use then so explained that to them I also explained that um, you know I, I preferred to use certain equipment and stuff like that and they were really supportive you know brought me equipment that I needed um, specific covers for my screen so I could see certain colours because I have challenges with colours as well as part of my dyslexia um, brought me some really nice fancy coloured whiteboard pens which was always useful um, and also you know, understood that when I was and outlaid to the customers that I was delivering to, that I would need that extra time. And sometimes it was fine with them, sometimes it wasn't, but it was something that at least the company that I was working for understood and supported and really, you know, sort of allowed me to express it.
0: Ah, so if I'm hearing correctly, what you realized was that it's possible for somebody, (laughs) an organization to appreciate, understand, and make accommodations, whereas before it wasn't even in the realm of possibility
2: yeah exactly yeah so and it wasn't something that I consciously I mean you mentioned you, you weren't diagnosed to an adult I wasn't diagnosed um or confirmed as dyslexic I, I don't like to say the word diagnosed because it makes it sound like you've got something wrong with you but it, it's not I, I actually see my dyslexia as a positive yeah I was confirmed as dyslexic around uh the age of sort of 17 so I wasn't really it's things that I've been doing when I was younger and you know my GCSEs that I took and all of the challenges I had with reading the, the papers and stuff like that was it all sort of fell into place. And I understood it a lot better when I was um you know sort of coming out of my late teens into my 20s. So, so yeah I hadn't at that point when I you know had that bad experience that was then made me aware that actually you know this next employer if I tell them then there's not going to be any of this awkwardness of them expecting me to do something I can't. So I just laid it out to them and I was so happy that they understood and just embraced it basically
1: it sounds like you were almost relieved to to know that this is that dyslexia is what it was for you like give it a name i'm having this challenge i think that it's a mixed bag when people find out that they are dyslexic as to whether they accept it oh now i understand myself better or i just don't want to hear about this title and label because it just means i'm i'm not great at something and the reason i yeah. say that is because my my daughter is also dyslexic and when we say dyslexia it's an unexpected challenge in reading and or writing in an otherwise intelligent human i mean that's how yeah. i've heard it defined by Sally Shaywitz but the she actually had trouble and still has trouble maybe it's because she's 12 accepting that you know that's just part of who she is
2: yeah and I, I can i can relate to that as well um you know when i was when i was um you know 12 13 14 all of my friends would be reading you know reading two or three books a month and you know and i'd struggle to to read half a book and and most of the time I'd lose interest in it because i'd forgotten most of what i'd already read so i tended to um you know, I can relate to, to that challenge as well. And I tended to, to try and move away from those sort of things. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I look at it from is actually that it gives me, a, it, it makes my brain work in a different way of thinking of things. So, um, you know, an example, a very simple example is, um, you know, I was going for um, a promotion panel uh, not so long ago, and they'd written something in the, in the slide deck that they wanted us to use as a template to, to show what we were doing as well um, around what VMware called epic values, which are values that they go through. So, And they, they'd said, oh, you know, you've got to use two examples of the epic values. And I, I interpreted that as two examples for every value, but everyone else on the board interpreted it as two values. So they presented two slides and I presented something like 12 around that subject. And, um, the, the, you know, I was asked, why have you done so many slides? I said, well, you asked us to do this and well that's not actually what we meant but just a very simple example but it's it just shows that my brain processes things in a slightly different way
0: that that ambiguity yeah part of me says like well we should be less ambiguous and there's also the danger of being like becoming like the legal profession where (laughs) you know things are just overly specific in you know in every single way so yeah i i totally understand it i mean i stop using the phrase biweekly, right what does that mean does that mean twice a week or does that mean every other week yeah that's a great example it means both so <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we shouldn't say things that could mean two different things and and does mean two different things or can be interpreted in multiple different ways and it is i think this kind of like until somebody interprets it differently in a, in a context where it impacts them and their performance, like, you know, people don't pay attention to ambiguity, which is, you know, interesting in the context of a, you know, some kind of like, you know, a promotion board where Mm. theoretically they're judging you for things like specificity and.
2: (laughs) Yeah, ultimately. Yeah, definitely.
0: My cheeky question would be like, you know, did that impact the promotion Performance of a person who wrote that slide, but that's.
2: Uh, <laughs> I, I At this point, while we're recording this, I don't know the answer to that because it was only on Thursday <laughs> that, that that happened. So um we'll find out. That was actually a principal promotion in VMware that I was going for, so it's quite a big, nice. big step Fingers up. crossed. Yeah, yeah hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's going to, look, to pretty <laughs> look pretty stupid. I gonna look pretty stupid if I don't get it now, but yeah.
0: Yeah, so I'm sorry, maybe I was being ambiguous there. Like I, I actually didn't mean like, you know, your performance, but I meant the performance of the person who actually wrote the slide where it said two
2: two values. <laughs> uh, yes, maybe. I'm not sure actually who wrote the slides, but I'm definitely yeah, yeah. asked afterwards. <laughs> <laughs>
1: One thing I didn't pick up on earlier, Phil, you mentioned challenges in reading. Were there also challenges in writing? Like if you have to type up a document and and make a design, for example was was that also a challenge?
2: yeah, definitely, you know, phys- actually physical writing with hands um, you know most dyslexic people have very similar handwriting and it's um it's due to coordination, but coordination doesn't always affect um people with dyslexia in the same way as to say someone with dyspraxia as an example who's was more coordination dependent. But what a lot of, um, they teach a lot of people in college in the UK anyway, around t- um, techniques on that is try to teach you touch typing. And when I was in college and they were, you know, that was when I was, was confirmed as dyslexic and they offered me some help. The lady that was helping me was actually trying to teach me how to touch type. And she was saying, I well, look at the screen type and I would look at the screen and I'd be reading what I was typing and it would help. But what would happen is, and what you, you might see a lot of people that have got dyslexia or dyspraxia when they're trying to do that, is they'll stop. So they'll type away, and then they'll stop for a few seconds, and it's almost like your brain resets because you've overloaded it. We're trying to coordinate what you're reading, coordinate what you're typing, and be able to manage what you're doing on the keyboard. And it's it's really common, and I've um, I do some I do a lot of volunteering in the Scouts in the UK so, uh, in an age group of between fourteen and eighteen, and we see a lot. We we do computer stuff there because that's what I know about. So so we do stuff with them around there. And the the young people that have got dyslexia there do exactly the same. And it's strange when you start seeing things that that you notice in yourself in other people and also in younger people that are coming through that maybe don't understand why they're doing it as well. But it's, yeah, it's quite common to find that. And it is challenging. And the way I got over that was I eventually stopped touch typing and I just um, type away now and then do the the read back further later um, to, to try and review it. And using things like Grammarly and um, you know, other tools as well do help, but you don't want to use them in a way that you become reliant on them, but you can use them in a way that you do help.
0: Oh, that's, that's interesting. I think you did mention that before, the the time it takes to read back as written is what yes. is the phrase that you used. And I didn't, you know, it kind of you know went through my brain as, I don't quite understand what Phil means by that, but I didn't think to follow up on it. But what you're talking about is kind of reading it to make sure that, what you wrote is what you meant.
2: Yes. So if I um like if I read back something as soon as I've typed it, it could say I could mean to type um I don't know as an example I'm I'm going to be recording a podcast later and then send that as a as a text to my wife. But what it could actually say is I'm going down to the shops to buy sugar. But I would read it as I'm going to record a podcast later because that's what I've expected it to actually say. And it can be that drastic sometimes as well. You know when you're doing design documents, it's normally words in the wrong place or the meaning of words wrong so what i find when i do do the readbacks um, as i'll read a sentence and say i might miss the word is i might miss miss that out as an example and i'd read it back and i'd put that word into the sentence naturally when i read it but then if i leave it a few days or i put that document in a different type of situation so maybe print it or maybe transition it from a word document to a powerpoint or something like that that changes your um your perception of it then I'll read it back how it's actually written down and I'll notice the mistakes and I'll be able to fill them in.
1: Oh, I like the the presentation change shift causing you to be a little bit more careful with your editing because I've definitely heard my daughter say something like that. Like, hey, I hope you're saturated by this, but what she really meant would be satisfied. Yes. Yeah. Just the the wrong word, but like, if you listen carefully to what was spoken, you can go, Oh, I bet they meant X. Yeah.
2: And that's a lot of people find themselves filling that in naturally when they're listening or reading to people. So I, um, like I, I have people, if I'm doing a document, I've got loads of support in, in VMware now. And, um, you know, those are mentors and mentees that I work with. And those are people in my teams that understand, you know, the, the challenges that I have, and they'll quite happily, you know, read a document back and, the, the thing you get when they try and review it is they try to be, oh, I, hope, I hope you don't think I'm being too too difficult or too harsh. Well, well no, if I've done something wrong, just just tell me. It's not the, You're not the first person to tell me that I've spelt something wrong or I've missed out a word or I've done this in, in this way. And um, so some people sometimes think they're being a bit brutal when they're pointing things like that out. But I think as you go through, well, definitely for me, as I've gone through different companies and different people and I've learnt ways of explaining it to people that, they understand differently. You know, ultimately, the feedback, as long as they're not, you know, blatantly having a go at you in their comments in the word document or whatever, then you know, you you appreciate them pointing stuff out, and it takes them time to to go through and read it as well. So, yeah, I'm always appreciative of people actually giving me feedback.
0: That's fascinating because it leads to just another idea, which is like the mental space of of editing somebody else's document is uh, non trivial. We always think like, oh, hey, can you edit this for me? Or can you review this for me? And that is a mental space that is different from the the creative space, right? Where you're giving somebody feedback on text and not on their personhood. <laughs> and sometimes like those two things get mixed up in people. And it certainly leads to, I think it is the exact thing that leads to discrimination when somebody is ignorantly treating somebody with like, you know, who is like, you know, di- neurodiverse is the word that I'll use, right? Yes. Yeah. And treating them as if this difference in the way their brain works is like, uh, and the, the implications on how, you know, they, their output is different is this like, oh, they're different. And that is a negative thing, and I'm going to treat them as if they are. Oh, it takes them longer to get this thing done. Thing done. The only thing that I, I know of is that they are incompetent. So I will treat them as 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 if they are incompetent. And it's like that jump of like this different path in my brain means that you are like I'm going to l- treat that as if that is your like negatively impacting your whole personhood yeah I, I
2: i get that yeah completely and um that becomes at the moment i would say in you know in vmware and um I, I, we should really go back to my transition into there because it's a good story that i like to tell but um yeah my my uh, vmware at the moment you know i'm asking people to review stuff that um, english isn't their first language and you know and they're correcting me on my my english and my spelling and grammar and things like that and i have had on occasion people react in that type of way where they're like well if he can't get his first language right you know and then this is my fourth language then he must be an idiot so they try to sometimes you know follow down that path but credit to you know to everyone that i've had that situation with in vmware they you know once i've pointed it out once i've explained to them and they've listened and and they've understood that their opinion has completely changed Um, i mean i speak a little bit german not great that you know some people in germany speak english far better than Many people in England do, so it's um it's understandable sometimes, I guess, how uh, you can fall into that. But yeah, it's not always acceptable.
1: That's a good point. That understanding of the differences in others. heard a little bit of the story of phil's presentation to the principal review board inside vmware i want to say a big congratulations to phil monk on achieving the principal title just recently that's a big deal we've had some episodes talking about that what the principal title and role means across the industry with andrew miller scott lowe and some others so good job phil we're proud of you and
0: yeah congratulations phil i'm Glad to hear about that. I hadn't asked the question since we did the recording. So congratulations. I think that we didn't really, I think we just teased the idea of dyslexia. We didn't talk about any kind of like neurodiversity in the intro. So maybe we could address it now. I I thought that it was fascinating to hear about Phil's dyslexia and how it operated, you know, how he experiences it, what he does to get along in the world it just made me think about dyslexia as a forcing function. And I know what everybody's thinking. Like, John, why are you bringing differential equations into this?
1: Because you want to make your podcast partner slash former math teachers heart happy. Is that, is that why? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Except that I'm not, I'm really talking about <laughs> the, the behavioral uh, definition of a forcing function where you do things to, you know, make sure that there aren't unintentional errors in something. So the idea of, of, writing something and then having somebody else read it to go through a review process for basically almost everything. Like, that's fascinating. And, you know, just the idea of having your brain work in a way so that you write something that is different from what you are thinking and intending to write, and then reading back and reading back the thing that you intended to write, not the thing that's actually written. I heard that and it immediately made me think, oh, there's definitely been times that I've done that, you know, 100%. So it just made me think that this is something that maybe is like a general like issue with the human brain that some people just experience like on the high end. It made me want to do a lot more research and reading about dyslexia and maybe just neurodiversity in general.
1: That was interesting to me about the the need to put something aside and read it back later so that you can detect the error i I hadn't right. heard that one and you know having a a daughter who is dyslexic as well that's something that i'll I'll definitely be keeping in mind and it's it's not only having a brain that works differently, but the recognition that you have this and learning to we'll just say adapt or accommodate that. When you're looking at the strengths that it brings, sure, maybe there are some things that are going to be challenging, but there are some, certainly some strengths. Just like when we talked to John Tolles in episodes 129 and 130 about ADHD being kind of a superpower for him because he could overclock his brain or parallel process stuff.
0: Or the hyper focus that comes along with uh, ADHD. Absolutely. Absolutely. It wasn't a defining thing, though, right? That That's the thing that I also got from the conversation. Like, it was woven into his being, but it wasn't... It was a aspect of what we talked about and not the only aspect of his being, but it was really cool to hear about.
1: Yeah, and that's that's a great point, John, because that goes into what he said about giving him feedback. If somebody sees that those challenges is the only aspect of his being they're going to have trouble or feel bad about giving him feedback and his comment was listen i i want to correct the mistakes so you need to you need to give it the feedback because it's necessary
0: yeah exactly great point well anything else uh, before we get out of here
1: last thing i want to bring up is this hunger to learn we see we've heard a lot of people come on the show and have this big interest, big desire to learn more, get outside their area, expand their knowledge, explain the blast radius, reflecting back to Andy Sirwich. But Phil spent his extra time on his days off shadowing a team he would later work on. I
0: I really love that story. Yeah, that was a great story. And I think there are aspects of that story too where he had a manager... Pretty early on, who was willing to let him explore new and different types of technology and you know things that weren't necessarily in the portfolio and regard that as a strength you know to build him up rather than like a threat, or why are you wasting your your time that you could be working on my stuff? You know what I mean yeah,
1: well, I think the managers were wise to recognize him as what former guest Jeff Eberhard would call a high flyer.
0: yeah there you go
1: ready to be off and doing something new but that's okay that's it we'll get out of here just a reminder we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on apple podcasts or wherever you're listening we want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder we're collectively on twitter at nerd journey
0: all right farewell listeners tune in next time as the journey continues I'm John White, happy journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd Underscore, signing off. Adios.